Did you know that God is in the testing business? Started all the way in the garden before there was sin. God was in the testing business. He gave them one command, one tree that they could not eat from. We move along in redemptive history and he tested Noah, who had to preach and build for 120 years before the rains came. Job was tested severely, tempted by the devil and tested by God. And then there was Abraham. Genesis 22, 1 says God tested Abraham with that offering of Isaac. The wilderness wanderings, God provided manna, not seven days a week, six days a week. He did so, quote, that I may test them. In Exodus 20, 20, Moses says to the people, God has come to test you. He continued the examination at the waters of Meribah. Judges 3.1 says God left the nations in the land to test the Israelites. Psalm 11.4 says, quote, his eyelids test the sons of men. Jeremiah 17.10, God speaking, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Jeremiah 20.12 Yet, O Lord of hosts, you who test the righteous, who sees the mind and the heart. There's even an end time testing coming for the nation of Israel. Many verses speak of this. I think this is one of the best. Zechariah 13, 9. God says, I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. It might surprise you to learn that Jesus himself was Tested, tested as to his humanity, tempted by the devil and tested by his father. Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen predicted this. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed or as the New Testament would translate it, disappointed. Why not? Because he was Tested, He was proven to be faithful and trustworthy. Very practically, prospective elders and deacons are first, the Bible says, to be what? Tested. And in fact, our faith is tested in the new covenant. First Peter 1 Peter 1.7 speaks of this. God is in the business of testing our faith, not for his own sake, but for our sake. It is said there that our faith will be refined like gold. With the impurities burned off and scraped away through the process of our sanctification. And so given that God is in the testing business. And given that Jesus is God in human flesh. Come to do the works of the Father. We rightfully expect that he will have a testing mindset himself. And this is exactly what we find in the Gospels. This is exactly what we find in the dialogue and the discourse and the preaching and the interviews and the encounters that Jesus Christ had with people. Numerous occasions, he's testing them with certain statements and questions and challenges. And that brings us back to our text in Matthew chapter 8 this morning. 
Our sermon text has been read. It's going to be verses 18 to 22 there in Matthew 8. My title this morning is Tests of Discipleship. Tests of Discipleship. But if you were not with us last week, and, and several of the guys certainly weren't because of the men's retreat, let's pull up that slide again and let's look at the greater context of where we are now in Matthew. We've come out of Matthew 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount, the authoritative words of Christ, and now we're moving in chapters 8 and 9 to the authoritative deeds of Christ, from words to actions. And it's an incredible structure. And just for a moment, before we even look at this structure, remind you now of the structure of the Gospel of Matthew. It has five major blocks of teaching uh, that go throughout this gospel. And these five major blocks form the core of this gospel. And it's what we will look at when we finally get to Matthew 28, Lord willing, to teach them all that I have commanded you in the Great Commission. Well, Jesus has commanded a lot in these five blocks of teaching in Matthew. But so there's there's tremendous structure in this uh, literary work of the Apostle Matthew. But there's also structure within the structure. Uh, This is a very organized man. Uh, This is a very structured individual. That's his personality. And he he builds in even more structure here in Matthew 8 and 9 on these authoritative deeds. And this is what it looks like. Three cycles of three authoritative deeds of Jesus that call us to faithful discipleship. And so let's just see this once again. The first cycle is there are 22 verses in chapter 8. And we looked last week at 1 to 17, his authority over leprosy, paralysis, and fever. And today we're going to hone in on these uh, these tests of discipleship in 18 to 22. And then the second cycle, you can read it for yourself. Again, three uh, miraculous acts of Christ with teaching on discipleship. And the third cycle, three another series of three over death, blindness, and muteness, and then discipleship. And so that's where we are now in Matthew 8 and 9. And today we find ourselves in 18 to 22 with these uh, tests of discipleship. So here's the text idea from that passage. Just before escaping the crowd by crossing the Sea of Galilee, Jesus confronted two would-be followers with tests of discipleship. That brings us to our sermon idea. Jesus confronts would-be followers today with tests of discipleship. And our sermon purpose, my purpose in this sermon is to test the commitment of all who claim to follow Jesus by using these two tests that are given to us in this text. This text answers the question of what? What are some tests of discipleship? That's what we're going to see here this morning. With the overall purpose and goal of this message to test your commitment of those who claim to be disciples, those who claim to follow Christ. Let's not look within our hearts. Let's look at the word of God. We need something objective. We need something that is a standard by which we measure our discipleship. Amen. Something that is outside of us and our feelings And our fickleness that is fixed for time and eternity to look into the mirror of God's word and say, God, you be the tester of my heart. By the way, uh, that that was a snapshot of some of those verses. This is why, because God is in the testing business, is why we can't be in the business of testing God. That's why he gets really upset about that. And there's commands against that. We are not to test or to tempt the Lord our God. And that's a grave sin because that's his arena. 
uh, to do of our hearts, you see. So we want to look in the Word of God and see how we, uh, how we come out then in these tests of our, of our commitment. These two tests are found, uh, the first test is verses uh, 19 and 20 with the first encounter. And the second test is verses 21 and 22 with the second encounter. But first is verse 18 and the setting, the all-important setting for these two tests. Look at verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. So he's coming off of the sea, uh, Sermon on the Mount. They're, they're, they're in Capernaum. They're earlier at uh, Peter's home. And, and now they're on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And he's going to give orders because the crowd has grown so immense. And he wants to keep a lid on the crowd because he wants to keep a lid on the opposition because it's not time for the cross yet. And so he wants to get away from this crowd and move to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And that would be a left-hand turn for them. They're going to be going east. They're going to be going into the region of the Gentiles. And he gave orders for this to happen. He wants to lose the crowd. He wants to relocate his ministry. Jesus did things in a peculiar way. He, he, he did things in an odd way. Uh, we, we think, oh, the crowd is there. That's the place to be. Jesus says, no, I don't want the crowd. I want to move away from it. And uh, And so he gives orders. Did you notice that? So we're talking about the authoritative deeds of Jesus. And here's just a snippet of his authority coming through. He ordered them. He commanded them to depart. This verse 18 gives us the setting because it hints already at the rigors of discipleship. The rigors of following Christ before we even get to the two tests. Don't gloss over the costliness of verse 18. It's easy to do. He is giving them orders, these Jews, these Jewish followers of his, these interested listeners of his. He's giving them orders to get in a boat and commit themselves to several hours of rowing. Sea of Galilee is quite large. It's several miles. And we're talking little boats that are not much bigger than some of our canoes. And so he's telling people, get in a boat and row across the Sea of Galilee. And oh, by the way, storm clouds are gathering. That's the next passage. And uh, we're going to a Gentile area. And guess what? You don't even know how many nights you're going to be away from home. There is a costliness and a rigor to verse 18 that could be easily missed. I wonder how many people, upon hearing his orders to depart and make this long journey for an indeterminate amount of time in Gentile area, I wonder how many people just shook their heads and headed home. Oh, Jesus, you just went too far for me. I just remembered three things I need to do back on the farm. I want us to feel this because we won't understand the rigors of discipleship without understanding the setting. Let's try to feel this a little bit better. Let's imagine our church was picked up right now and moved to Leon Springs. Right there on I-10, just past Bernie, almost to San Antonio, Leon Springs. Well, it turns out that Leon Springs is 23 miles from the Alamo. All right, let's let's suppose we're sitting in church today in Leon Springs and Jesus walks in and he gives orders to follow him to the Alamo. And by the way, you're going to be walking. It's 23 miles. And as you begin to head out, you look off into the distance there and dark storm clouds are coming. And uh, you're not going to be spending the night at the Hyatt Regency on the Riverwalk. All right. 
No, you're going to the Alamo, you're going to downtown San Antonio, you're going to do street ministry, you're going to minister to the homeless. You're not even sure where you're going to sleep, how long you're going to be there. All you know is Jesus said, let's go to let's go to the Alamo and let's start walking. That would give us today a sense of what is going on in verse 18. Now we are ready for the first test of discipleship. I call it the test of comfort. The test of comfort. Look at verse 19. Then a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. In Jewish practice, the student chose the teacher. The disciple chose the rabbi. And this is a scribe, which means he was an expert in the law. He was a teacher of the Torah. Uh, This man was a professional teacher. We might liken him to a seminary professor who had been teaching away for 30 years somewhere. This man would have loved studying and loved teaching and loved learning. And, and so it's not a surprise. It's very natural that a scribe would refer to Jesus as teacher. He's saying we're, we're, we're kind of alike here. And it's amazing what's going on here because this man has likely heard some of the amazing teaching of Jesus. Maybe he has witnessed some of these miracles that we read about this morning. And what he is doing here is he has said, I have decided that I have chosen you to be my rabbi, you to be my master. He overhears this order, depart to the other side of the sea, and he just blurts out, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. I'll follow you to the ends of the earth. (laughs) In other words, I'm all in, teacher. No distance is too far. No challenge is too great. This man is excited. He is enthused. He is on fire for God. Right? I'm always intrigued by how Jesus deals with people who are so enthused and so on fire for God. He's chosen Jesus. He's made a great profession of faith. He's he's lined himself up with his new rabbi after probably some careful consideration. He had many options to choose from. And he says, I will go with you. I will follow you wherever you go. So what's the problem? The problem is he hasn't counted the cost. The problem is this is shallow sentiment and emotionalism. This is not someone who has counted the cost. This man right here is a perfect example of seed that has fallen on shallow soil. That has sprouted up immediately, the parable says, right? And as soon as the first test comes, as soon as the sun and the heat bears down on that little sprout, it withers away and does not bear fruit because it had no depth of soil. This guy's a perfect picture of that in the parable. This man is doing what Peter would later do and regret. I will never deny you. I don't care if everybody denies you. I will never deny you. I'm willing to die with you and for you. He's doing what Peter did. He's overestimating himself. He's overestimating his commitment. He's overestimating his ability. He has no idea what he is saying. He has not counted the cost. And Jesus sees right through him and responds with the first test of discipleship, the test of Comfort. Jesus said to him, 
The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Basically, Jesus says, really? Really? How far are you willing to go? You're going to cross the sea and then what? What are you willing to give up? Is what Jesus is saying in verse 20. He's calling this man to a radical commitment, not shallow sentiment. Verse 20 is a question. Are you willing to sacrifice a settled life? You see, scribes were famous. Scribes had prestige. Scribes had money and, and, and security and, and respect of the people. Their life was all planned out for them. It was all laid out before them if you were a scribe. Jesus is saying to this man who's promised to follow him wherever he would go, are you willing to sacrifice all of that? Are you willing to give up a scribe's life of comfortable prestige and position? Are you willing to give up a pillow and mattress? You see, I will follow you wherever you go is met with, basically, I'm homeless. Right? Isn't that what he's saying? Verse 20. Yeah, Jesus stayed in people's homes. Peter was one of them, but he didn't have a home. He was an itinerant, bouncing from bed to bed and, and house to house and place to place. He says to this man after this great boast, really? I'm homeless. Are you still coming along? It's a test of comfort. It's the test of comfort. Verse 20 says you need to forget that comfy life where you do whatever you want. Verse 20 is a call for us to embrace a rigorous, self-denying life of sacrifice as we bounce from place to place through this pilgrimage, pilgrimage. To our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. This is not where we belong. This is not where we ultimately live. This is not where we want to be. Verse 20 is calling every disciple to a life of rigorous, self-denying sacrifice. The Calvary Road. The cross before the crown. And verse 20 is even more stunning, even more startling. Because of how Jesus refers to himself. Don't miss it. He calls himself here by his favorite designation, the Son of Man. He uses this instead of saying, I. And this is profound and very, very deep. And it makes this statement and this test of comfort even greater than it appears to be on the surface. This little designation, this title, Son of Man, is 81 times in the Gospels. 30 times in Matthew and every single time from the mouth of Jesus. It is his favorite self-designation. And it is loaded with meaning. In fact, there are three layers of the meaning to Son of Man. And I need to give them to you so that you understand what's going on in verse 20. The first layer of meaning for Son of Man is the humble Son of Man. Sounds just It is just what it sounds like. Son of Man. I'm a child of, of, a, of, a, of parents. I'm a creature. I'm mortal. I'm human. Uh, This means on the first layer of meaning, he is the humble son of man who has come to serve, who has come to do his earthly work, get his hands dirty, smell like sheep, work among God's people. He has come to fulfill his earthly calling. The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the humble son of man has nowhere to lay his head. 
This is now pulling from Ezekiel, where Ezekiel is referred to 93 times in that book as the Son of Man. And the meaning there is he is a mortal human being. The second layer of meaning for Son of Man, when you look at those 83 uses and put them into categories, is he is the suffering Son of Man. So not just humble and not just a human being, but his life would be marked by suffering and grief and sorrows. He would bear pain and rejection and scorn. He would suffer all the way to a cruel cross. He is that son of man as well. But then finally, the third layer of meaning and the one that gets to the core of this is he will be the reigning son of man. The enthroned Son of Man. So now pulling from Daniel seven thirteen and 14 where it says, One like the Son of Man will come up to the Ancient of Days and will be given dominion over the whole earth. Right? He is that Son of Man. He is the one who is the Messiah to come to reign and rule over this planet, having dominion of the whole earth. So this title, Son of Man, perfectly conveys His humble humanity, His divine mission, and His eventual glory and reign as the Messiah. It is an ambiguous term, and that's probably why Jesus loved it so much. It communicates layers of meaning. And it's also, listen now, very ironic. Look again at verse 20. Even the most simple of creatures, the fox has a lair and the, and the birds build nests. The most common and the most simple of God's creatures have a home, have somewhere to lay their head. But the sin-solving Messiah is homeless. The one who will come and fix planet Earth. The one who will come and reverse the curse and fix the fall of man has no home. He's below the birds. The king of all mankind has no castle. The one who will have all things under his feet has nowhere to lay his head. And so it is incredibly ironic that he would use this title. And it just heightens this test of comfort. Well, the test of comfort is met with uncomfortable silence. (laughs) Right? Where's the, where's the guy's response? It's, it's not there. Matthew leaves us hanging. There is no response. And we're left with the implication that this man who is, who is presented with this test of comfort doesn't pass the test of comfort. And he goes home and we never hear from him again. This scribe is like the rich young ruler who goes away sad. Because he is not willing to give up his bed and his pillow to follow Christ. May I ask you this morning a personal question? You who are Christians here, you who claim to know Christ, may I ask you a personal question? When you became a Christian, did you count the cost? When you are considering whether you're going to believe and repent, whether you're going to follow Christ, whether you're going to become a Christian, while you were in the middle of considering that under the conviction of God being drawn to Christ, did you stop for a moment and calculate what this was going to cost you? I sure hope you did. I sure hope you did because this is part of coming to Christ, a very important part of it. 
Maybe you're in that category right now. Maybe you're considering becoming a Christian. Maybe you're considering giving your life to Christ as your Lord and Savior. Turning from your sin and believing in Him and and saying, I want to start a new path in life, a new choice, a new direction. I want to follow Him for the rest of my life. I want to be like what this man said on the surface. I do want to follow Him wherever He would call me to go. Maybe you're in that place right now. I want to ask you right now to count the cost. You need to. You see, the test of comfort reveals the difference between shallow feelings for Jesus and a committed faith. And there are hordes of people that have shallow feelings for Jesus and warm fuzzies that get stirred up in emotional services and sing songs and do whatever. But that is not the same thing as a committed faith. All right. The test of comfort reveals the difference between being a fan of Jesus or being a follower of Jesus. Right. Big difference. Uh, Here's another analogy. It's the difference between playing the field or getting married to Jesus. Okay. Marriage says I eliminate the field. There is no other option. I'm choosing one person, one person for life. I'm signing, I will follow, I will follow. I'm with you forever. See, before you commit to follow, you need to weigh out what will be lost and what will be gained. You need to weigh out what you must give up and what you will inherit. For some people, especially when we're talking about adult conversions, and I would say in nearly every adult conversion, part of counting the cost might involve giving up or losing your job. You may be doing something as a non-Christian you can't do for a living as a Christian. Or doing it in such a way or with a certain kind of people that this is just not going to work going forward. For, For some people, as they are counting the cost, it's going to mean friends, right? A whole set of friends are going to have to be lost. Not that you turn your back on people or you start hating them, certainly nothing like that, but your whole set of friends change if you're converted as an adult. For some, it will be the cost of giving up family relationships. You need to stop and consider what is this going to mean? What am I going to lose if I'm going to become a follower of Jesus Christ? All right? It may mean giving up the lake and the boat and the beer on weekends so that you can go to church. On weekends, right? It may mean giving up Spurs season tickets so that you can tithe and practice sacrificial giving. It may mean giving up soap operas and exchanging that for Bible studies. There's a cost to following Christ. and, And there's a test of discipleship, this test of comfort. I think this happens many, many times, especially in our day and age. A lot of people that become Christians move from a very undisciplined life of really excess in in many areas to a life of daily disciplines, right? Where you begin practicing daily disciplines of grace that is just foreign to what your prior life looked like. Those who come to Christ will move from a self-centered life a selfish life, to a life of listening, to a life of serving, to a life of loving other people. This is what fruit of repentance looks like. This is what it means to do a 180. This is what it means to to turn and follow Christ. It's the test of comfort. The next test I call the test of security. So we move from the test of comfort to the test of security. It's verses 21 and 22. Look at verse 21. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my 
my father. Interesting, a disciple it's called there in verse 21. We need to remember that as Jesus was doing his itinerant ministry, he had large crowds following him. And there were layers of people around him with layers and and varieties of interest and degrees of commitment, right? You had people that were on the fringe. They were just curious. They were just interested. A crowd draws a crowd. So they show up. Hey, what's going on here? What's happening? And they're just kind of checking this out from the very fringes of Christianity all the way into the 12 disciples eventually and even the inner core and Peter and John and, and James. And so you've just like in any crowd of people considering religious things, considering the gospel, you've got all levels and degrees of of interest. And this person here is called a disciple. It's early on in his ministry. No one knows exactly who he is or what he's going to do. This person is a learner. They're a follower. Uh, We might call them an apprentice disciple. Okay, this is not one of the apostles. They haven't been chosen yet. And this disciple, this this apprentice says to Jesus when he gives his order to depart, he says, uh, basically, can I be excused? <laughs> can I have a hall pass from your authoritative command of verse 18? Uh, and it sounds so good, doesn't it? It's so pious. Lord, he addresses him as Lord even. He says, will you please allow me first to go and bury my father? Now, based on the Ten Commandments, where the finger of God wrote on stone, honor your father and your mother, and based on common piety of Judaism, and based on custom of even of their society, this is a very valid request. And of course, the book of Genesis, Genesis contains all of these examples of, of children, uh, Fulfilling the sacred responsibility to bury their parents. We see examples of that. And there's some other things that, that make this sound really good and, and really valid. You know, for the regular priest, this is interesting. This is out of Leviticus 21. For the regular priest, if they were on priestly duty and they had a parent die, burying that parent trumped their priestly duty. There were only two exceptions. If you were the high priest, you were exempt. And if you had taken a Nazarite vow, you were exempt. Other than that, if you're a priest, if you're a minister of God there in the Old Covenant, this was so important that it trumped other duties. We know from the Sermon on the Mount, I'm building a case here for where we're going, so just pay attention. I know from the the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He came to uphold it. He came to fulfill it. He even demonstrates that when he commanded the leper to go to the temple and show himself to the priest. He was commanding that leper to fulfill the law in Leviticus as a testimony to them because Jesus wanted them to know that I uphold the law and this man is clean. And, oh, by the way, Messiah is present. (laughs) Calling card. That's what all that was. That's why he told him to go to Jerusalem and show himself to the priest. Okay, so we put all that together, and this is a very valid request in verse 21. Unless the father is still alive. Right? you got to understand this day and age. This man would not have been here if his father was about to die or had just died. He wouldn't even be here. They buried right away. They buried immediately. And that set off 30 days of mourning. 
This man would not have even been present. Now, there's debate about this, but I am fully convinced in my mind, and there's lots of arguments, and I'm not going to go into them because there's not time, but I am fully convinced in my mind that this man's father is very much alive. Making this a a very much invalid request. (laughs) What this really is, is a veiled request for financial security. It is a veiled and pious sounding request to put Jesus off until he gets the estate. And now I'll come follow you, Jesus. There is no real commitment here in verse 21 under this pious request. This is just sentiment. This is just emotion of the moment. This is not a committed heart devoted to following Christ come what may and under all circumstances. What he is doing here is actually really quite offensive. And that's why he gets a much more harsh response than the other one did. He is asking for potentially a very long delay, isn't he? The father is likely living. He may not even be sick. This could be months. It could be years. He's asking for a delay to secure the estate. He may be the firstborn. He may want to make sure I'm around to get my double portion. You know who he is? He is the stony soil in the parable. He is the, st- the, the soil that has the weeds that, that, that rise up and choke the, the, the little plant. And Jesus says it's choked out by the cares of this world. This man is putting off eternal security for fleeting financial security. This man says Jesus is important, but he's not the highest priority of my life. He is a disciple, but his commitment is fleeting and Jesus will have none of it. See, he sees to the heart, he sees to the core. He will have none of this pious misrepresentation. Look at verse 22, but... Jesus said to him, you follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. Whoa. You drop your excuses, your dilly-dallying and your procrastination, and you follow me continuously starting right now, and you allow the spiritually dead to bury their own physically dead. You allow those who could care less about the kingdom of Christ to bury those who are not going to be in the kingdom of Christ. Verse 22 is basically leave your mother and father and cleave to me. It's saying you need to risk the family inheritance for a far better one. He's saying follow me and and all of that will just take care of itself. And it will. This is the test of security. And the test of security comes in many forms. It can come in the form of relationships, right? Where we find security in relationships, security in another person. And Jesus comes to us with his call. And it may be that I have to walk away from that relationship to follow Christ. This test comes in the realm of the financial, as I think it is for this man. It could come in the form of changing schools or jobs or friends or even the house you live in, depending on a number of factors. Verse 22 would resonate even today with a Jewish and a Muslim convert, many of whom, when they convert to Christ, they are disowned by their families, right? 
they are considered dead by their fathers in the Muslim and Jewish communities. Jesus here is testing that. He's testing that, that sense of where do you find your security? Where is your allegiance? Where is your ultimate trust? Follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. Imagine if somewhere along the way, unbelievers Bill and Melinda Gates made it clear to their three kids, you become a Christian and there will be no inheritance for you. Now, Bill Gates has spoken derogatorily about Christian faith more than once, so I don't think this is a far-fetched example. You become a Christian and you're off the gravy train. And then imagine one of those three children and... I think they're in college or a little bit beyond now. Imagine if uh, one day they inter- they're introduced to a Christian and that Christian begins to befriend them and, and love them and show them sincerity and humility and contentment and all these wonderful things that Christians can show. And, and imagine that person begins to share the gospel with one of Bill and Melinda Gates' children. Dad's over here saying this in, in one ear and Christ is over here saying this in one ear and this person's in a place of great conflict, aren't they? It is the test of security. Are you going to risk everything to follow Christ? You see, really the test of security is a test of faith, isn't it? Isn't it a test of trust? Isn't it a test of allegiance? Where does my ultimate allegiance lie? This is why in another place Jesus would say, you've got to hate mother and father in comparison to your love for me. Again, I think the marriage analogy is the best. We need to leave and cleave to Christ. And then we still honor our mother and father as we are commanded. The question here of verse 22 to this uh, would-be disciple is this. What is Jesus worth to you? You see, if you trust Jesus, you walk the 23 miles to San Antonio with the storm clouds gathering because he said so. And because he's going. Do you want to really stay here if Jesus is leaving? (laughs) Don't you want to follow him? Don't you want to be where he is? You go, well, how are we going to get there? My shoes are where I don't think I can walk that far. What if the storm gets? Do you trust Jesus or not? See, he doesn't just give command and say you're on your own. He gives command and says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I go with you. Okay, Jesus, if you're going, then I'll go. Isn't that what Moses said in the wilderness? If you will go, then we'll go. But we can't go without you. How are we doing? Test of comfort. Test of security. How are you doing this morning? Are you, are you passing the test? I want to leave you with this thought. Maybe you can talk about this in home groups uh, today or later this week. It's a proposition, really. You can't trust Christ as Savior without submitting to Him as Lord. And you won't submit to Him as Lord without trusting Him as Savior. You won't cross the sea, submission, unless you trust Him when you get there. These two things, submission to Him as Lord and trust in Him as Savior, are so intertwined that you cannot have one without the other. 
That's my proposition. That's the thought I'll leave you with. Let's pray. Lord, the test of comfort, the test of security, are really a test of allegiance. They're a test of our faith. Do we really trust you, Lord? I pray by your grace our faith would grow. I pray that you would expand it, that we would have a great faith, even like the centurion. Great faith, even like the leper who said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. There was never any doubt about your ability. Father, I pray today for those who are considering the Calvary Road, considering becoming a Christian. I would ask God that by your spirit, you would help them to count the cost. This is not uh, something that will keep them from being saved. This is something that will confirm the work of grace. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.